This episode of the JLMD podcast looks at PGM1 CDG. I'm pleased to be joined today by my editor-in-chief and one of the first ladies of congenital disorders of glycosylation, Professor Ava Marava, who is a clinical geneticist and metabolic specialist at the Mayo Clinic. Good morning, Ava. Good morning. Thank you for this opportunity to talk about PGM1 CDG. Well, no, I'm, I'm very grateful for your presence. So we're talking today about the recently published international consensus for the investigation and management of PGM1 CDG. I think what I've got you actually would be really useful if you could just, in a nutshell, just explain what is CDG. So CDG is, of course, the most important inborn error of metabolism. You need glycosylation for most of your functional proteins. You need it for immune processes to work properly. You need it for your coagulation, for your endocrine regulation, but also your organ development. So without glycosylation, most of our functions and most of our organs cannot function properly. There are almost 150 different types of CDGs. And this means that one aspect of glycosylation is not completely correct. All these steps are different steps in the synthesis of glycans. And most of the CDGs in general have a synthetic step wrong. So they either lead to absence of glycans or decreased amount of glycans on the proteins or lipids. Or the sugar antenna or oligosaccharide, which is made in the process, is imperfect. Okay, so if we know that congenital disorders of glycosylation are the most important inborn errors of metabolism. So perhaps you could give some background around PGM1 CDG specifically. So PGM1 or phosphoglucomutase 1 deficiency is one of the most unique CDGs because it affects both aspects of glycosylation. Actually, it causes a decrease in glycosylation, but also imperfection of the oligosaccharide or glycan antenna synthesis, so combined glycosylation disorder. I also should mention the biochemical background and how it leads to CDG, because it's not trivial. PGM1 is not an enzyme in the glycan synthesis pathway but it's actually one of our most important enzymes. It is on the crossroad between glucose 1-phosphate and glucose 6-phosphate. It's bidirectional, and it's really essential in many metabolic pathways. You need it to release glycogen and produce glucose when you're fasting. So if you have a deficiency and you don't eat, you have a very severe fasting hypoglycemia. And that gives the disease an aspect of glycogen storage disease. It was also called glycogen storage type 14 in the past, which is funny because actually there is no uh, obvious storage. You don't see storage in liver or muscle when you do histology, but you have all the symptoms of storage 
And the other, and then for us glycomaniacs, this is a more relevant aspect of the disease, that because glucose 1-phosphate and galactose 1-phosphate are strongly linked through the LOLOAP pathway, if you have a PGM1 enzyme deficiency, then you also get a problem with nucleotide sugar synthesis. And the nucleotide sugars are essential building blocks of the glycans. That's how you actually make the oligosaccharide chain. So that's why PGM1 also causes a a congenital disorder of glycosylation. Thank you. I mean, that's wonderfully thorough explanation of the, the nature of the disease. This is obviously a consensus statement drawn from a lot of different experts, and, and you're one of those. How did you go about creating this in the first instance? So this is a great story because not everywhere in the world there is collaboration in science, but actually the glycomaniacs are a nice group of scientists who has been collaborating already for actually more than a decade. And this includes um, scientists and and physicians and the CDG Patient Association, and uh, not only in Europe and the US, but all over the world. So the the goal was always to improve care and the quality of life of CDG patients. And actually, the guideline was also an initiative to, to help and educate our colleagues and to improve care in uh, for our patients. So we had a really great scientific uh, CDG World Conference in Belgium and the meeting participants got together and decided to start to create guidelines. Um, and we started with the most common um, uh, PMM2 CDG and decided that we should follow with treatable CDGs. Rukaya Altasan was my uh, visiting genetics fellow back then in Belgium. And you know, this like guideline creation needs a lot of reading. So she was with me in Leuven. This is where CDG was discovered. Professor Yakin uh, discovered um, the, the first patients with CDG and we were there together seeing patients together when we started with the first guideline. So she started with an obsessive literature review and went through 980 papers for the first guideline. <laughs> and she kept the team together like... Um, really a huge team, especially for a, a first guideline. I think we had like 50 people in, in the team. And now with Rukai's help and also support from my PhD student, Sylvia Rodenkovic, and of course the uh, Frontiers of CDG Consortium here in the U.S., we created this new guideline on PGM1 CDG. So, you know, what is going to make a clinician suspect this diagnosis? When when should someone start looking that bit harder for the PGM1 CDG as opposed to something else? So I think there are two major presentations. Of course, you know, it's a spectrum, but the early presentation is very suggestive. If you see cleft palate, or a small midline cleft or Pierre Robin syndrome in association with um, hypoglycemia. This is a life-threatening condition, and obviously they are not getting enough nutrition because of the cleft. 
if they are not managed properly. And then the hypoglycemia can be really so bad that about 10% of patients with hypoglycemia develop seizures due to profound hypoglycemia. And usually in the early stage, it's non-ketotic because there is hyperinsulinism. But later, it's more ketotic because of the glycogen release aspect. So that's mostly the early presentation. However, there is a late onset milder form, which is usually presenting with uh, rhabdomyolysis, which is not so mild. It's very severe with extremely high CK levels and also elevated transaminases, which are also unusual combination of symptoms for CDG. Well, so that you know, obviously leads us on to, we've, we've got this pa- patient and someone has, you know, there is aware of the condition. They're saying, well, could it be PGM1 CDG? What is the, the next stage in making the diagnosis? So this is a really important question because I think uh, many colleagues, pediatricians think that it's a sort of complicated, specialized uh, screening process to send out the test for CDG. I'm not advertising um, the carbohydrate deficient glycoprotein testing, which is actually the test when uh, you think that somebody abused alcohol and you want to prove that there is uh, alcohol ingestion. But this test would pick up as a screening most of the secretory uh, disorders of glycosylation. So PGM1 would be picked up by it. And that's a test which is available in most hospital settings. Obviously, uh, there are more specific tests like the transferring isoelectric focusing in blood or the best is the mass spec analysis of of glycosylated transferring to screen for um, and glycosylation disorders for most of them. And in PGM-1, we haven't had a patient ever without these classic glycosylation changes in in blood. And the pattern is really unique because if you remember, I told you that this is really a strange disease. It affects the synthesis, but also the structure of glycans. So you get a really unique mixed pattern. And by screening, you can actually diagnose this specific CDG from all the 150 (laughs) CDGs quite efficiently. And this is really important because this is a CDG where we have a treatment and most of the CDGs do not have a treatment, especially not a dietary treatment. And so this is all metabolic specialists' dream (laughs) to have a dietary intervention, which actually works. But Also, the other aspect of the testing that when you treat the patient, you can follow the actual glycosylation improvement by um, uh, following the glycosylated transferrin levels. And and you can tell that the patient is compliant and the therapy is working. So once you've made the diagnosis, is there anything else that you should be checking at the same time when you found the patient to have PGM1 CDG? Yes, yeah, so I, I think that's, um, that's a really good point because uh, glycosylation and, and, and glycosylation, secretary glycosylation has a very um, 
important uh, negative effect on your coagulation. And it, it causes an increased bleeding risk because uh, most of our coagulation factors and even our thrombocytes are uh, glycosylated. So you could have a severe uh, bleeding, for example, during surgery for your cleft palate. Uh, but also you have an increased thrombotic risk because antithrombin 3 and protein C are both glycosylated proteins and the PGM1 uh, deficiency affects these two uh, proteins. Um, sometimes you see only 20, 30% residual activity of, of these proteins function. So you can get a severe thrombosis as a baby uh, if you are not giving high fluid intake and if a patient stays inactive. This is also important for travel because uh, some of these children travel for hours with, um, you know, with the parents or to the hospital and they can have a thrombotic uh, episode without stopping and uh, moving around and especially hydrating during travel. So throughout our discussion, you've alluded a couple of times to this being a, a treatable form of inherited metabolic disease. Clearly there is a treatment. So, so what is it and how well does it work? So I'm always over enthusiastic about this and um, take it with a grain of salt. But of course, when we discovered treatment, we got so excited. Um, the the treatment is oral galactose therapy, so it's not lactose, it's galactose, and it does make a difference in uh, efficacy. Usually, if you treat uh, patients with lactose, that would take about a year to work, and if you start galactose treatment, you usually see already positive effect in a few weeks. So why galactose and uh, how did we figure this out? So we actually thought about this based on an observation that children who were not uh, receiving milk um, were more affected compared to the ones who loved milk and drank several cups of milk a day. Um, so this was an observation in our, in our patients early on. And in addition to that, we also saw by the tandem mass spectrometry results that the glycans, so the oligosaccharide chains or sugar antennas, are missing galactose units. So they are truncated and they are unfinished and they're missing this uh, essential sugar. So we thought, what if we give an, a large amount of galactose sugar um, so the monosaccharide in the diet, would that compensate for uh, this abnormality? And we were really pleased to see that biochemically this is starting to happen already after a few weeks. And the type of biochemical abnormality changes throughout time. And if you give this treatment long enough, around a year of treatment, you see already normalization of, uh, of the missing glycan chain aspect of, of the disease. And still, it further improves uh, with, the, let's say, the improper or um, um, not fully galactosylated glycosylation. So 
actually galactose rewires metabolism and changes the metabolism by activating nucleotide sugar synthesis. And we showed that in a very nice paper uh, written by our PhD student, uh, Sylvia Radenkovic in American Journal of Human Genetics, that this is more than just a supplement. This is really a metabolic change. You can see uh, this is lasting longer than just the treatment itself and changes metabolism. And we see improvement in glycosylation, in endocrine function, in coagulation, in hypoglycemia. Longer term, we see a decrease in the episodes of rhabdomyolysis from one of my patients who's uh, a young adult. And uh, she had a rhabdomyolysis episodes um, like uh, sometimes two or three times uh, a, a year. And we started her on therapy maybe eight months ago, or we started a galactose intervention. And also she started a healthy, complex har- carbohydrate diet. And so she texted me that she walked the 5K challenge yesterday and no CK elevations, no rhabdomyolysis, actually not even pain. So I think this is really um, an impactful uh, therapy. I can give you another example. One of our co- colleagues here in the United States uh, cared for a patient who had such a severe liver involvement that ended up on the liver transplantation list. And this little uh, child actually started galactose and get off the transplantation list because the fatty liver disease completely um, disappeared on therapy. So I'm very, I'm very um, uh, pleased and, and hopeful that um, we will uh, bring therapy to perfection. But I'm already, um, there's one culprit, and that's the cardiomyopathy. Unfortunately, a, a smaller percentage of patients do develop cardiomyopathy. Sometimes they are born with cardiomyopathy. And it seems like galactose doesn't treat the cardiomyopathy. And the question we are trying to answer now, is this maybe more due to the glycogen release aspect of the disease? In other words, if we are giving the patient also long-working complex carbohydrates, could we uh, prevent the development of cardiomyopathy or is this something a developmental aspect of the disease and unfortunately not um, sensitive to, um, you know, traditional nutritional interventions. So the jury is still out on that. We should all be practicing evidence-based medicine, but it's lovely to have the actual, you know, reality for patients in there. And that's obviously, you know, the reason why all of us do what we do. The journal um, has now published a few consensus statements, not just on on glycosylation disorders, but um, on some other um, inborn errors as well. As the editor-in-chief, what role do you see for these um, statements in clinical practice and and how are they received? So I'm very proud of our guidelines and to see that they are downloaded all the time, that, that gives me a lot of satisfaction and energy to carry on. If you think about what can you do better or more, I think what's maybe a possibility to 
give a little bit more educational aspect into it. So I think that our patients and uh, some of the physicians who are not metabolically trained want to understand the essence of the guidelines and they should be simple and clear. So I think what we plan to do in the future is also to somehow translate this into lay terms and and distribute as an educational tool, especially to to help our patient associations as well. So uh, that's something which is new with our journal. I think we are uh, trying to open new avenues for education. Uh, one of our uh, new fun projects is news and views from patients and parents. It's a wonderful opportunity to teach through cases described by the parents as they see it. And another uh, new avenue is to put more education into um, the GIMD reports where we could add this educational aspect to interesting case reports to to have to train our our young colleagues as well. So stay tuned. (laughs) Thank you so much. You've talked about your energy there. I think you've, you've, you've never short of energy when I speak with you. It's been, a, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for your time. And uh, I'm sure we'll speak again soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can find the full article online on the journal website. And you can hear more from the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease wherever you get your podcasts.